This is Food First Michigan on News Talk 760 WJR. Sponsored by the Food Bank Council of Michigan, creating a food secure state, and by Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan. Now here are your hosts, Dr. Phil Knight and Jerry Brisson. Welcome everyone, and thanks for listening. A sigh of relief. I think I make that sound several times on any given day. That sound is made often at our distribution sites across Michigan. You know the ones I'm talking about. You've seen them on the national and local news broadcasts. Cars in a line stretched for miles, waiting, hoping, and wondering. Waiting for their turn, hoping there will be enough food, and wondering what exactly they might get. People wait, and they take their turn. They get into the distribution site super early, hours before the distribution truck has even left the loading docks at our food banks. They wait, and they hope. They hope there will be enough. They've heard how people have waited sometimes for hours only to be turned away because more families came than anyone knew, and the trailer is only so big. It holds only about 44,000 pounds of food, and sometimes it isn't enough for the number of people who need help. As they wait and hope, they also wonder. They wonder if there's enough food for them, and what will it be? They've heard sometimes it's milk, eggs, fresh produce, and even meat. They wonder, but they dare not anticipate, but silently sit, wait, hope, and wonder. The good book says, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. But the triangle of emotions for a food-insecure mom and dad are fear, dismay, and guilt. Yet they wait, hope, and wonder, and all three of these are torment. A gentleman, a professor, an author is our guest today who set out to understand the torment of people who are trapped in poverty and held captive by the bonds of being food insecure. He is an advisor to the Department of Health and Human Services. He is a professor at the University of Michigan, and he is the leader of the Poverty Solutions Center housed in Ann Arbor. He is Dr. Luke Schaefer, our friend and colleague who desires like we do to free people from the torment of emotions that can come from being food insecure. Luke joins Jerry and me next here on Food First Michigan. Welcome back, everyone. As promised, Dr. Luke Schaefer is with us and joins me and my co-host, Jerry Brisson. Jerry, you're looking great as always, and, and, uh, and welcome, Luke, to the show. Well, it is so great to have Dr. Schaefer on the show. I, I will say this. Um, we have met. I have heard him speak, and particularly about a, a book that he co-authored about what it's like to live on very little in the United States with uh, profound insights and stories from a lot of people 
Um, it touched my heart. I was absolutely happy to have been there um, to to hear what he had to say and and to hear more about his story and how he got to where he is now. So I can't wait for him to share that with all of us. And with that, uh, take it away. Yeah, well, I'm really, uh, really pleased to be with you both and appreciate the invitation um, and uh, just excited to, to talk. So to tell a little bit of my story, I got into this work. I've always been um, just really, I think the, the focus of my work life and when I think about my calling is, is poverty in the United States and understanding um, understanding it, understanding people's experiences and trying to figure out what we can do, what we can do different, what we can do better uh, to help families live the lives that they want to live. And that came out of, I think, two things. One was uh, my faith life uh, growing up. My father was an Episcopal minister. And so just really understanding that call uh, in the Bible to address poverty and be in relationship. And the second piece was we didn't have a lot of money growing up. So my dad went through a career change, um, as is often the case with people who experience uh, economic hardship. Uh, you know, we went through a career change. We had to move very suddenly. Um, and I knew, I grew up in the Ann Arbor area, I knew that um, there were other people who had a lot more money than us and, and that we were struggling. But on the other hand, I also knew that uh, we didn't have to go to the welfare office. When, when we were short on the rent, we could go to um, grandma and grandpa. And so that's one of those big differentiators, right? When you think about um, income and you think about wealth, it wasn't just that we didn't have any money coming in, but we had this sort of safety net uh, uh, that sort of protected us from other experiences. So I didn't really feel middle class. I uh, didn't really feel poor in a sense. And, and so in that way, I think I saw myself as someone who could maybe bridge the gap a little bit between those two groups. So, wow. yeah, I started out, I actually did some casework. I, I worked, uh, I was the, I was the food boy. Uh, they called me when I was, uh, sort of very early in my career, uh, in Oberlin, Ohio, where I went to college, um, organizing for a, a food distribution that we did monthly. And from there, uh, got into some casework, helping people um, who were facing eviction or facing having their utilities shut off. And that's when I sort of thought, you know what, um, maybe there's some structural issues here. Maybe there's some things that I can do to help um, all of my great colleagues doing direct service work to try to make it so they have fewer people who are coming in with crisis. And that's what got me into um, research and analysis and sort of trying to look at the, the safety net. Um, I turned into a data nerd uh, where I didn't, you know, our, our lives take us in directions we weren't expecting. And I went to graduate school and figured out I really loved working with data. And uh, data makes me feel very warm and cuddly inside. Um, and, and so for a while there, I think I was doing good work, but I, I started doing, you know, the professor thing and, and studying poverty from my office, uh, looking at spreadsheets and um, it was really the, the book you mentioned, Jerry, uh, $2 a day that got me back into the work of both looking at data, but also knowing that to really do this work, you have to have your work connected with people and you have to understand stories. And sometimes, you know, we don't even know the right questions to ask. It's wow. a it's a powerful truth. I mean, our, our our show last week was all about stories and it's for exactly the reason that you said it. And I think Dr. Phil even said we often talk about data on this show, 
And we don't talk enough about the stories because there's nothing like um, a person's truth to open you to the fact that whatever you thought isn't exactly right. And that life is more complicated and more dynamic and in some ways more difficult, but in many ways just different than the ideas you have before you learn from people what their story really is and what they've tried to do and the, the resources they had or didn't have to do it. And we find ourselves profoundly moved and often impressed at how people living in poverty can manage a very difficult situation um, with incredible facility. So, and, and again, I know that some of the things you talk about in your book reiterate that as well as many other things. So, so, um, so let's kind of marry those two things if we can. You know, the, yep. the, the things that you've discovered in the data aligned with the things you've learned from people that have brought you to places of, so it's got me thinking this these days. So I would say, um, just following up, Jerry, and, and what you were mentioning about, um, it can be humbling, right? If, uh, you know, I've often thought with the book, for example, I, um, I remember going out and starting to meet families, and uh, we would usually do that work in the summers when we weren't teaching, and I saw a little crease on the inside, um, cre uh, a little divot on the inside crease of one of the mom's elbows. And I sort of immediately thought, oh, she, she looks clean now, but that's, maybe that's a drug track line. Because of poverty, you know, we're, we're all pre-programmed with, uh, we don't come to it. Any, nobody, I think, comes to understanding poverty as a blank slate. We have these sort of narratives that bubble up. It turned out that uh, little scar was actually uh, from selling her blood plasma so much that it had, it had scarred up. And, and that got me back to the data where I could see, actually, the number of Americans who sell their blood plasma has quadrupled in about the last 15 years. We had about 12 million sort of units of plasma sold 15 years ago. Now we're, we're over 50 million. And wow. these plasma centers are just growing all over the... The country, usually in urban poor areas, uh, deeply poor areas, areas of um, with uh, high concentrations of people of color, and when you talk to people selling their plasma, they often say, um, you know, it's because they need the money, right? They need the the thirty dollars that you can get to sell your plasma. Maybe it helps you keep the lights on. Maybe it helps you um, get that you know birthday present for your kiddo. Uh, but it is a part of this packaging, right, where you see people who are packaging together, just as you said, um, this and that and and food, food pantries and food, food, food programs are like an essential piece of that. And and you can see that in the data, too, where the, the number of Americans who are relying on emergency food services has just continued to grow over uh, the last few decades. Guys, we're going to take a quick break here. Luke, thanks for sharing your story. We want to dive into some of the work that you're doing, and particularly the, the work that you're doing as the director for the Poverty Solutions Center at the University yeah. of Michigan. And Jerry, you're going to love that title already, because it's Poverty Solutions. It's not Poverty Management, because <laughs> one of the things, Luke, that Jerry says all the time is that You'll never solve a problem that you don't believe can be solved. Mm -hmm. So when we saw this, oh, it's the Poverty Solutions. And we're like, he's our guy. We got to talk to him. <laughs> so we're going we're right, to come back wait. in just a minute. Jerry Brisson, Dr. Luke Schaefer, Dr. Phil Knight here. We're back in just a moment. You come back and be with us, too.
contact the Food Bank Council of Michigan at fbcmich.org. Now back to more Food First Michigan with Dr. Phil Knight and Jerry Brisson. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for listening. Jerry Brisson, Dr. Phil Knight here with our guest, Dr. Luke Schaefer. Um, Luke, you came to the Food Security Council and gave a presentation. And some of that helped us get connected because of your work with the Department of Health and Human Services. I I think you have a little bit of a, uh, you know, inner access to the director and you're able to help him think through a lot of the problems. Dr. Uh, Director Gordon has been on the show with us before. Um, But but then, you know, we get in conversations with the Department of Health and Human Services. And invariably, they'll say, well, you know what? We probably ought to talk to Dr. Schaefer about that. We ought to probably talk. And that, so we're really excited to have you with us today. Tell us about the work at the Poverty Solutions Center. And you're serving yeah. as the director there. Tell us about that. Yeah, uh, I'm uh, excited to do that. So Poverty Solutions is a university-wide initiative at U of M. It gets its charge from uh, President Mark Schlissel. And our mission is to partner with communities and policymakers to find new ways to prevent and alleviate poverty. So the goal was really to sort of get out of the ivory tower, the work of measuring poverty and understanding its causes and consequences is important and writing journal articles is still important, but really our mission is to, is to try to work with community groups, uh, uh, policymakers, really to figure out what can be done about it. And when we think about that, we really take a systems level approach. We see poverty as the result of a lot of interlinked systems that often don't work like they should for families at the very bottom. And uh, we try to put our focus on figuring out what can we do to change a system to make it work better. So we have a partnership on economic mobility with the uh, Mayor Duggan and his team in Detroit. And I have a number of staff members who primarily sit at City Hall. Uh, I think it's the first time U of M has ever had uh, that sort of arrangement. And we try to work with them on a set of policies that will uh, reduce hardship and enhance economic mobility in the city. One thing, uh, one example of that is the digital inclusion director of the city of Detroit, a guy named uh, Josh Edmonds, is uh, actually technically works for me, and it's a part of us understanding with the city that access to digital resources, right, access to the internet is essential to finding a job, to maintaining a job, and the skills to navigate those resources is essential to work and essential to success in school. So uh, before uh, COVID hit, they were doing really innovative things, like having one of the most innovative laptop uh, checkout um, loans at uh, the public uh, libraries in the in the city of Detroit, where people would be able to check out laptops and a digital access card for a, a longer period of time. And uh, um, uh, just lots of other programs. And then uh, when COVID hit, he was a part of a big effort, a very exciting effort in the city to make sure that all DPSCD students, this was led by DPSCD, uh, had access to devices and internet access, uh, which rolled out last summer. So that's the type of thing. We don't want to think of poverty as this amorphous thing that we can't really sort of sink our teeth into, but we think of it as affordable housing. So in the city of Detroit, we've worked a lot on 
uh, tax foreclosure, right? This was a, a huge crisis that hit the city over a number of years, um, where uh, a city that was once majority owner is now majority renter. And there are mechanisms that were on the books to help families uh, be who are low income be relieved of tax liability to manage that that weren't as utilized as they should. So our scholars at U of M were a part of efforts to really try to combat that. A lot of people were involved. That's sort of one of our things is that everything has to be done in partnership. We don't we don't know everything. We don't know the right questions to ask a lot of the times, but we do have a set of skills that can be useful. And so we like to try to count up these wins, right, where a program works better because we worked in partnership with policymakers or communities. And, and this is exactly the same thing that I do at the department. So uh, the uh, Department of Health and Human Services, as you mentioned, Phil, that Robert Gordon is the leader. Robert asked me to serve as a special counselor to him and Lou Rubel, who's the deputy director of economic security. And we just look at the programs and we say, do these work well for families? Do these programs set families up to, uh, for success? And then we try to make changes uh, where we're able uh, to, to do that. You know, I love the approach for a lot of reasons, but one of the things that really resonates with me is when we look at food insecurity, we recognize that the people who are food insecure have lots of different kinds of stories, lots of different kinds of capacity to, to make improvements or not, and lots in varying needs depending on how they enter the system. And so one size fits all solutions rarely work. You, 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 get, you, you look at a piece of it, you get that piece done well, you understand the impact of that piece and who it helps and who it really doesn't. And that experience leads you to the next thing. And so when mm -hmm. you begin mm -hmm. down that path, you don't know the end in mind exactly. But what you do know is that if you break it down into bite-sized chunks and take one chunk at a time and then understand the impact that that made, both positive and who it might have left behind, you can begin to understand the system in a more comprehensive way and help or effectively help more people. So I, I really like what you just described as examples of ways to take pieces of the problem and really address those pieces and then understand how did it work? I, I really like that a lot. Yeah, so uh, I think you might have just said it better than I said it, uh, but this is exactly how we think about it. And we want to think about what are those big picture visions that are five years off or a decade off, but that's not all we're going to do. We're also going to say, hey, what can we do this month that can really change a system that will work better for families? And then what can we do this week? And what can we do today, right? And really believing that changes small, medium, and large can, can have a meaningful impact on families' lives and then follow those experiences, exactly like you just said, right? We were working on tax foreclosure. We're still doing work on that. Um, we've worked with the city, with, um, with a great uh, housing housing rights a group called the United uh, Community Housing Coalition, UCHC, and Quicken Loans, their community fund. And we're able to devise programs that helped uh, turn renters into homeowners when homes were being uh, foreclosed on because the landlords weren't paying the rent, right? So that's a great way to try to solve a problem, get better outcomes. But then we saw that a lot of those homes were in really bad, they were in disrepair. And so that led us to do a whole line of work on home repair programs. How do, what, how do we do that well? What do you fix? 
what resources, how should we be designing programs? We helped the city think about redesigning their programs and then created a home repair guide for the city of Detroit as well um, that just lists all the things that are out there. And that, you know, surprisingly, almost to me, that's, that's been one of our top sellers. Uh, you know, we don't, we don't sell it, we give it away, but uh, copies of that have just been flying off the, you know, off the printing press. There's, there's so many angles to this idea of poverty solutions. And yeah. um, I, I'm looking at your website, which is poverty.umich.edu. Yep. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So I also, there is the Michigan Poverty and Wellbeing Map. Um, I'm going to have to dig into that because I'm wondering how that kind of works with our self-sufficiency standard uh, that we published that's on our website, because I got to imagine that the two are going to kind of like look like layers of each other in, in my mind. So yeah, uh, I want to do that. But also I see where you and your team really put your, put your money where your mouth is because uh, you've got a food drive going to happen in a couple of days for uh, one of our food banks, which is food gatherers there in Ann Arbor. So you're just not talking to talk, brother. You're walking to walk. That's right. Yeah, we've been uh, we've loved partnering with food gatherers, uh, and I think one of the projects that we helped support uh, a number of years ago, uh, as you all know, work requirements were sort of reimposed uh, on folks on food stamps uh, now SNAP that um, uh, are able-bodied. Uh, adults without dependents. And so we funded some research that was done with food gatherers on what the impacts of that were. We looked at the research nationally. So there was a, a Washtenaw County specific project about making sure that people who were losing coverage because of those uh, uh, were got what they needed. Also looking at the research nationally to show, you know, when you do something like add work requirements to a public program, the, the impact, uh, there's very little evidence that it has any impact whatsoever on rates of work, that people are more likely to find a job because of that stick. There's a ton of evidence that when you do that, people lose their benefits. Uh, so if that's the goal, if that's the policy goal, then, then fine, right? But to me, I don't, wanna, I don't want people to go hungry and I don't wanna put more pressure on you all um, and not get any sort of benefit, right? Um, so this is true with food stamps, uh, SNAP, as well as Medicaid. It, it looks like there's, they cause tons of confusion, they're hard to administer, and people lose benefits, and they're worse off because of it. So I've also worked with the department where um, we have been able to sort of go back to doing what we were allowed to nationally, which is to exempt uh, most counties in Michigan where uh, in a lot of places it's still difficult to find a job, especially you know now more now than ever, right. uh, from that requirement, and try to try to make it more streamlined and figure out other ways to help support their employment outcomes. What a concept! What if work supports actually supported work? <laughs> yeah, call me yeah. crazy. Yeah. We got to take a break. Jerry Brisson, Dr. Luke Schaefer, Dr. Phil Knight here. We're back on Food First Michigan in just a moment. You come back too. Food First, Michigan. Once again, here's Phil and Jerry. Welcome back, everyone. 
back here on Food First Michigan. Dr. Luke Schaefer is our guest today. And, uh, you know, Jerry, one of the things you say, I don't know why I'm quoting you so much lately, but you say, you know, with this work of food security, and particularly today in the context, the larger context of poverty solutions, that a lot of really smart, driven, mission-focused, purpose-driven people are coming to this work. And certainly Dr. Schaefer is one of those. I'm really happy he's on our side. <laughs> so far, but the show isn't over. <laughs> no, you know what? Here's so as as you were talking, Dr. Schaefer, you know, the 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 thing that comes to mind is this this saying here, if people only knew, if people only knew. And 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 what really made that happen for me is when you're talking about um, the the desire to require people to work to get benefits. And the truth is that desire comes from a good place. It comes from a place that says there should be accountability on a personal level before you accept benefits from from another source, whether it's your grandmother in yep. your in yep. your family's case yep. or or yep. whether it's the state, you know, that people should have a sense of personal responsibility before we just give them something. That's not a bad idea. Um, but here's the thing. They do. That people who live in poverty have an incredible sense of personal responsibility. And in, in the vast majority of cases are taking all the steps they know how to take to make their life work. And our experience with people who live near poverty and who yeah. need emergency food help is that they wait too long. That in fact, they don't get help soon enough because they are so deeply committed to solving the problem themselves. And so I say, if people only knew the stories and the, and, the, and the actual lives of the people that we serve, they'd be less concerned about there has to be uh, absolute um, litigated, you must look for a job because they'd realize that the vast majority of people are already doing that. It's just like the number of people that think that the majority of people we help are homeless. It's not true. It's a small percentage of the people that we help are actually homeless or or in a, a completely destitute situation. In fact, most of the people we help are families. Mm -hmm. Families living close to the poverty line. When you're raising a family, it's yep. more expensive for your household. It's just true. So, so who then needs the most help? It's struggling families, right? So that's, and 47% of the people that we help are employed. Yep. So it's wages not keeping pace with life expectations, yep. or you lose a breadwinner from the home, or you have a health yep. concern. Those are the things happening in people's lives. And when you make it harder for people who are already struggling to be successful, you're hurting the whole community, even though the intention behind that is good, and it's coming from a good place. And I'm reiterating that for this reason, then I'll be done. We like to fight each other a lot in this community. We like to divide each other. We like to talk about how yep. one person is right and one person is wrong. And I just want to say as someone who deals with very rich people and, and people that have a lot of means and also very poor people and people that don't have a lot of means, I find I can trust and respect them all. They're not bad people. They're all good people. So, so I think that proving it Proving what you're proving, Dr. Schaefer, in terms of saying this is the real impact makes really important points for us to come together, not to divide us. 
I think you're absolutely right. When I think about efforts around work requirements, you're right. It comes from a, it, it, it is a moral principle to stand for people. Um, but uh, sometimes it doesn't connect with what is actually going on in the ground, right? And how people are, uh, what people's experiences are. And also, it is also a matter that uh, the programs just don't work in that in that way, right? If we impose work requirements and people worked, and you had fewer people coming in, you know, um, seeking out emergency services, we w- I would look at it a lot differently. But that yeah. that's not what we see. So when when we impose work requirements, there's a New England Journal of Medicine article that had a very strong evaluation when Arkansas implemented work requirements on uh, Medicaid, so health insurance. And people just shed off the rules. Like, they were just losing. And it wasn't actually because they weren't working a lot of times. It was because there was mass confusion. It's complicated, right? To If you're reporting hours, then you have to also, government has to pay people to check those hours. Uh, you're, you're dealing with internet access, right? You're dealing with, like, people, some people who thought the work requirement applied for them, to them that they had like missed the deadline and they gave up and it actually didn't apply to them. And some people who it did apply to thought they were exempt, right? So it's just, it's actually a hard thing to administer. So there's always a question of like, do we, um, if something like is based on a principle, but the effect is it doesn't work, do we keep on doing it from a policy yeah. perspective? Now, you mentioned uh, that 47% of the, the folks who come in um, are people who are working. That actually mirrors the national data very closely about half of people who report food insecurity at the at the national level are in our households where somebody's working full time. And, you know, one thing that I have really grown to appreciate is, um, you know, I'll say from the story's perspective, that uh, the families who I got to know in my book, we would always ask them if we come back in a year, what, you know, and things are going well for you, what does it look like? And with like surprising consistency, they would say at this, this was a couple of years ago, I'd be in a, a job with stable work hours. Stable work hours is a big key. Um, mm-hmm. Making $12 an hour. I had one person out of the entire group that wanted $15 an hour, right? This was, this was like the American dream to families. And they wanted a, a place to live, a place to call their own. And I think in that, you see a lot of the challenges that families are facing. They, they're facing unstable work in and actually sort of understanding how somebody's income swings, just as you said, Jerry, where they lost a job or their hours got cut or a partner moved out of the household. All of those things mean people are grappling with their incomes going up and going down throughout the year. That's actually, it kind of looks like maybe that's even more difficult to manage than a stable, lower income overall. Um, and and so being there, right, and having some services that are are simple, straightforward, that we know sort of provide a base level that families can depend on is, is critical. $2 a day, living on almost nothing in America. That's the book. And you can get it at Amazon because I'm looking at it on Amazon right now. Actually, I'm looking at YouTube right now, but I'm also <laughs> looking on Amazon and you can get Luke's book, uh, $2 a day, living on almost nothing in America. And, um, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that I might get that for the legislature. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Dr. Schaefer. Jerry and I will be back in a moment to wrap up this edition of Food First Michigan. Come back and be with us. 
Hey, Jerry, I loved having Dr. Schaefer with us. It was amazing. Uh, he's a great person and and so nice that he shared his story and is willing to be a little vulnerable about his own upbringing and some of the challenges that his family faced. But to turn that uh, hardship into a lifetime of service for the community is, is uh, you know, uh, inspiring, to say the least. <laughs> yeah, he classified himself in one of our calls as a data nerd. And I'm thinking, no, Bubba, you're a lot more than that. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was good to talk with him. As when I met him the first time, I had the same feeling. He's just somebody that you like talking to. He's a reasonable, cheerful, intelligent, dedicated person. And of course, it's one of the reasons we believe this problem can be solved, right? When we go back to what we say about food insecurity, we have enough people interested in solving this problem. We can solve it. And, uh, and so I take a lot of... Uh, a lot of hope from conversations like we had today. Well, and I, I like the exchange that you and he had in the in the in the last segment we had him on, uh, where you you brought out some of the the heart motivation behind a policy about work requirements and 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 you know his reaction to that was that of understanding. Let me move and sit in front of this person who believes this. Uh, and see if I can understand this better, rather than to be dismissive of someone else's position. And I think that's why we can say that hunger is an, uh, a challenge in our society that has the ability to unite us when we have that type of approach with one another. Let me listen so that I can learn instead of listening to respond. Well, and it's so easy to do a shameless plug for our program right now. Because that is exactly what we do. We have people from the whole spectrum. Everyone has a place in solving this problem. Everyone has something important to contribute and something that helps us see both the complexity and the possibility of solving hunger. And it's both those things, and we've got to listen to each other and learn from each other if we're going to make this uh, a food-secure community. Well, you know, I, I'm gonna. I want to circle back to a point to just again we made in the show that that Dr. Schaefer is the director for the Poverty Solutions Center, not the Poverty Management Center. Right. You know, I mean, it's a, and I and I quoted you, and I know this is a conversation that happens in our own Feeding America National Network. Um, so I just said that we need to be tolerant and listen to learn rather than to listen to respond. And the group that I'm going to have a little bit of trouble doing that with is the people who just want to manage this. I don't want to manage this. I want to see it solved. And I think the first step in solving poverty is to create food security and get people's mind free from that toxic stress so that they can have the opportunity to discover their next success. Amen. Amen, doctor. You, I, I'm in the choir and I'm singing as loud as I can. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I'm just going back to your root philosophy that says you can't solve a problem that you don't believe can be solved. So, okay, well, so why I want to have the conversation about solutions. You want to have the conversation about management. So you're going to have to go over there and have that one because I'm going to have this one here. <laughs> Well, like I say, we've we've brought a lot of people into this conversation, and uh, and there's been a lot of progress, and we will continue to make progress 
on creating a food secure Michigan. It's exciting work. It's important work. And it's a delight to do it with you, doctor. Well, thank you. So I'd like to do it with you on this award-winning show. There we go. Time for a little food for thought. Henry Ford is reported to have said, whether you think you can or you can't, you are right. I think I understood that statement, but never really applied it. And recently, I had an epiphany about our work and Mr. Ford's statement. The food banks are distributing record amounts of food to families in need, largely caused by the pandemic. And contained with every box of food is hope, less worry, and maybe a chance to think about what's next. What could be? And how do I make it happen? The power of taking hunger off the table is demonstrated in the freeing of people's minds from the toxic stress of being food insecure. If a person has strength, then a tiny bit of hope can cause them to think, I can. That is the first step in finding success. And that is the power of food. It may look like an apple or a can of beans or a frozen chicken or a gallon of milk to you or to me, but it is much more than that. It's hope. And that's why around here, we'll keep it. Food first, folks. Food first. Food First Michigan, presented by Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan and by the Food Bank Council of Michigan, creating a food secure state.